And so the opposite of exaggeration is what? It's understatement. It's, it's downplaying, minimizing something. And so here's what I'm going to do just to kick off this sermon is I'm going to just read off three historic understatements. And some of these you will recognize, but let's make this a little interactive. See if you guys can guess who said these things. So the first one, I think you'll know because they made a movie out of it. But do you guys remember this line? Okay. It might have been Tom Hanks. Kevin Bacon who said it, but Houston, we have a problem. Do y'all remember this? And what was the situation? This is Apollo 13. So 200,000 miles away from Earth with no oxygen. Okay, the astronaut radios back to HQ and he just says, we've got a problem. All right, major understatement. This is one that is a little more obscure. You might know it. We got a couple of professors in the house. Uh, it says, this structure has novel features which are of considerable biological interest. Anybody want to take a stab at this one? Okay, you were at the first one. That doesn't count. Okay, but you still knew it. Okay, this was, this was Watson and Crick, two scientists who discovered the existence of DNA. Okay, so the, the double helix, the foundation of all life. And they called it, it was just, it was just novel. Uh, it was of considerable interest. And the final one, this might be my favorite. Uh, the statement is this. I'm just going to go outside and it may be some time. You won't recognize this one, but this was said by Lawrence Oates. He was actually uh, an explorer, and he was on an expedition to reach the South Pole. Okay, so it was his job, his task, to walk across Antarctica with nothing but a dog sled on his feet, and he just says, I'm going to go outside, and it might be some time. And so with with each of these quotes, I mean, what are you feeling right now? You're like, guys, this is an understatement. You're downplaying things. I mean, if I'm in a spaceship and we don't have oxygen, it's not a problem. This is on the verge of disaster. And if you discover DNA, it's not just novel. This is a world-changing discovery. And hiking, you know, to the South Pole, living in Antarctica, this is not just wandering outside. This is the most hostile elements in the world. So we want to shake these people, right? And say it's so much greater, it's so much bigger. Do you really understand what's going on? But, but here's the irony. We're Americans. Look, we're not prone to understatement. We're prone to exaggeration. But if there's one story that we consistently downplay and understate, you don't know what that story is? It's actually the gospel story. It's the good news. Because when we remind ourselves of the gospel, when we share the gospel with our neighbors, usually we communicate it this way. Okay, we say something along these lines, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and one day my soul will go to heaven. And so here's what Paul is attempting to do in Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. He's putting his hands on our shoulders, and he's saying, it's so much bigger than this. That you're downplaying the gospel. You're understating the gospel. It's not less than this. It's more than this. It's so much bigger than just Jesus dying on the cross for your sins. And so that's what we're going to explore this morning. We're going to look at the bigness, the cosmic dimensions of the gospel, and we're going to look at four verses in Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. So if you could, read with me. It says this, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, 
to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. So if you've been participating in our church over the last couple of weeks, we are working our way to Ephesians 1, verse by verse, slowly but surely. And you've heard Andrew mention a few times uh, that this section of Scripture is actually one sentence. So from Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, it's one sentence. And it's bad grammar, okay, but it's really good theology. Because what Paul is trying to describe is that this plan of salvation or redemption, it can't be broken. It, it can't be divided, divided. And I'm not even going to dare put a sentence, excuse me, uh, a, um, a, a period in this sentence to make it seem like it could be broken up. And so when you look at this extremely long sentence, there's different emphases that Paul has. He, he looks at the past, the present, and the future. You could also divide it up this way. In verses 3 through 6, he emphasizes the Father. 4 through 7, the Son. And then th- 11 through 14 would be the Holy Spirit. That's almost an overview of this sermon. We're going to look at the past, the present, and the future of salvation, the blessings that we receive in salvation. So point number one would be this, the past blessing of election. The past blessing of election. And this is what we've probably spent about three weeks on, and we've talked about this, is that before creation, before God created the universe, spoke it into existence, his first act of salvation was to choose some unto salvation. He chose some unto salvation in eternity past. Now, some of you, if you've missed the last couple weeks, you might be thinking to yourself, but Ben, I chose God, right? I made a decision to follow Jesus, put my faith in God, and I would agree with that. I would say, yes, absolutely you did, but the only reason that you chose God is because God chose you first, right? Scripture would suggest that we love because he loved us first. Now, even though you've been through several sermons on this idea, this topic of election, there still might be some confusion. We've been having some great dialogues in our community group about election and its implications, but I'm going to be honest, there's still a certain degree of mystery that I still possess. And I would just say this, okay, when it comes to our state election and our national election, there's been a certain degree of mystery this week, wouldn't you say? Okay, if there's even mystery in the U.S. election, there's definitely going to be a sense of mystery in this cosmic election this spiritual election. And so if you're still confused, you're in good company. Okay, this is a tough topic, and it's confused and baffled scholars, pastors, preachers, academics for decades, if not centuries. But this is what the gospel teaches, uh, is that God chooses some unto salvation. So now we move from the past to the present. And the present is this, is that we receive the blessing of sonship the present blessing of sonship or adoption. And this is what last week was all about, where Andrew unpacked this, the, the, the idea of Roman adoption and how in verse 5, we're not just saved, but we actually join the family of God. And we receive the benefit or the blessings of sonship. We receive the full privileges of being a son of God. And this is where the, the passage picks up today, Because Paul emphasizes two specific privileges that we receive as sons of God. And they're two Bible, churchy words that we need to define. The first is this, redemption. And the second is forgiveness. So that's what we're going to double down on. Redemption and forgiveness. Well, what is redemption? 
In the original language, redemption means this, deliverance by price of payment or to buy out of a marketplace. So in the ancient Near East, if you were to redeem something, you would go to the market and you would buy some wheat, some grain, some pottery. You would purchase or redeem it. Sometimes we still use this word if, you, if, you're, you know, if you're super cheap or you're a couponer, you redeem your coupons, but it means to purchase something, to buy something out. But there's also another sense to this word, because it also means this. It means to ransom from captivity or slavery, or to free someone from bondage. So when we talk about redeeming, we're not just talking about a generic marketplace, we're talking about a slave market. And I'm not just purchasing dry goods, I'm actually purchasing, buying and selling human life. That's what it literally means to redeem. It's the purchase of human life. Now, what about forgiveness? It's the second side of the coin. Forgiveness means this, to cancel a debt. To cancel a debt. It means to be rescued from the judgment of sin. So we see here, forgiveness, it's always costly. It's always expensive. It costs something. So if you combine redemption and forgiveness, the two privileges that we receive as sons, we see they almost function as two sides of the same coin. And redemption tells us this, is that if we're in Christ, we've been freed from slavery. But forgiveness tells us the type of slavery. It would suggest that this is a spiritual captivity, that we've been slaves to sin and to guilt. And look, Jesus backs up this teaching. Because here, this is the very words of Jesus, but Jesus says this, look, if you sin, if you make a practice of sinning, you're actually a slave to sin. In other words, Jesus is saying, nobody is free, and we're all captives to sin apart from me. And then later on, Jesus actually reveals his purpose in leaving heaven and coming to earth, and he says this. He says, look, I didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life, you know the next word, as a ransom. That means redemption. That means purchase. He says, I give my life as ransom for many. Later on, Paul actually says, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. So do you see that this is actually the narrative that Jesus explains himself? That we, if we're in Christ, we've moved from slavery to freedom. And so this actually pushes back on how we personally in our society thinks about sin. Now look, I I work and, and, and interact with college students. And when we think about your college age years, those four, five, six years of adolescence, we, we tend to give people like a, uh, it, it's a time to, to live it up, to sow your wild oats. And very often we use phrases like this, you know, uh, you know my, my, my boy, he's in college, he just needs a little help, or he's just walking down the wrong path, or he's drifted away from God. And yet the biblical testimony is this, it would say, no, this young man is in bondage, he's in prison, he's guilty. And think about how we talk about our, our, our own sin. Sometimes we say this, I just need a little help. I need to get back on the right path. I need some advice or a little spiritual pick-me-up. And once again, the biblical testimony is this, is that you need a savior. You need a ransomer. You need a redeemer because you're a captive to sin. I think, you know, when we, when we think about our own sin, we tend to sanitize it, clean it up, minimize it. So you might say, you know, I shop a little too much, right? I spend too much time on Amazon. I spend a little too much money. And Scripture would say, no, you're mastered by materialism. Some of you would say, you know, I dabble in lust. 
It's every man's battle. It's just a struggle that we all fight. And Scripture would say, no, you're in captivity to pornography. Some would say, yeah, I worry a little too much. I'm fixated on the future, but it's a pandemic and it's an election year. So again, Scripture would say, maybe you're a captive to having control. And then finally, you might lose your cool, get irritated, frustrated. You might say, well, you just don't know my boss or you don't understand my kids. The Bible would say, anger is your master. And look, I, I recognize that everyone in this, you know, this sanctuary would be willing to admit they're, that they're a sinner. Nobody's going to make the claim that I'm sinless or I'm perfect. But you might be thinking to yourself, Ben, I, I don't feel like a captive. I know I'm a sinner, but there's no way that I'm bound. I'm not a slave to my sin. Well, I, I respond to you in two ways. The first thing I'd say is this. Maybe you're a slave and your master is just socially acceptable. Does that make sense? You might be a captive and your master is simply having a good reputation or a stable family or being successful or well-liked in your business or your community. But the second thing I would remind you is this. No matter what your, your, your master is, Jesus had to die in order to free you. So whether your master is immoral or moral, socially acceptable or rebellious, the only way that Jesus could redeem or purchase you from captivity is by what? By shedding his blood. And look, if we are not completely in captivity to our sin, the death of Jesus is totally absurd. Have you ever thought about that? If we are not slaves to our sin, then the death of Jesus is absurd. Let me put it to you this way. Imagine just for a moment that I invited you to go on like some sort of sunset cruise. We're, we're just, we're cruising down a nice little river. We're, let's make it local. We're going down to Little Tallapoosa, but like one of those deep, deep parts, okay? I don't know if that exists. <laughs> and let's say, for example, I, I, I say, look, I, I, I'm loving this cruise and we're sharing this fun evening on the water and I want to demonstrate my love for you. I, I want to show how deeply I care for you, my affection for you. So I'm going to jump off the boat, and I'm going to drown myself for you. I'm sinking to the bottom because I love you so much. I mean, what would you think about that? Okay, yeah, I love the interaction. It's crazy, Ben. Right, that would be insane. You need to be locked up. Don't do it. Stay in the boat, okay? Don't prove your love by jumping overboard, right? It would be insane, wouldn't it? Now, let's just reverse the scenario. What if we're on that boat and we hit a rock? And the boat starts to sink and submerge, and you can't swim. And you're thrashing in the water, and I jump in and sacrifice my life in order to drag you to the shore. Okay? I die risking my life to bring you to the shore. All of a sudden, right, it's a moment of deep love, sincere devotion, and real sacrifice. And the point I'm making is this, okay? is that the reason why Jesus had to die is to free us from captivity. This is what gives it meaning. And God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. There's a lot of things that he can snap his fingers and do. In fact, in Genesis 1, he creates the heavens and the earth with what? His words. But there's one thing that God cannot do with his words. You want to know what it is? He can't forgive you. And he can't forgive me. Because forgiveness is expensive. Forgiveness is costly. God can't speak it into existence. Jesus had to shed his blood. And so, this is who we are. This is who the church is. We are free men and free women. 
So put yourself in the way back machine. Imagine if you were a freed slave in the ancient Near East and we were gathered together and there's no, there's no water cooler, there might be a well. What do you think the topic of conversation would be? We'd probably be rubbing elbows and saying, hey, what was your old master like? And you got freed. I mean, how much did they pay to free you? And what's your new life like? And what sort of price did they pay? Well, just think about it this way, brothers and sisters. We are the redeemed. And as we look around, we all have the same redeemer or ransomer, and it was Jesus. And he paid the same price for each and every one of us. He gave up his life. He shed his blood. And this demonstrates the riches and generosity of God. Verse 7 says this, that he is rich in grace, that he's lavish there's one thing that we're always curious about is how wealthy somebody is. Anybody guilty of that? So you, you want to know like the net worth of Bezos or Buffett or Bill Gates. What do we do? We get on Google. How much is he really worth? You know, a football coach signs a new salary. An NBA player gets a new deal. Okay, we obsess over how many millions they're receiving, what the salary looks like. Sometimes if you can't find it on Google, we try to size people up. Well, he drives this type of car, lives in this type of house, wears these type of shoes. He must be worth blank. Well, God also likes to flex. He likes to demonstrate his lifestyle of being rich. And how does he prove his riches? How does he prove that he's got money? He says, look, he says, I bought you and I bought you with my blood. I purchased your freedom. You're no longer a slave and you can go free. And here's what's amazing. Eventually, even this analogy breaks down. Because if you were a slave in the ancient Near East, guess what? There's no stability. Okay? Believe it or not, there's no stability in being a slave. Because at any moment, another master could outbid the current master, and you get moved, okay, to another farm or plantation. At the same time, your current master could get tired of you and say, I want you out. But what do we have with God? We have a God who paid the ultimate price. You can never be sold again because nobody can top the blood of Jesus. But we also have a master who's not only our master, he's also our father. And so he says, you're my son, you're my daughter, and I'll never tire of you. There's ultimate stability by being purchased by God. And so when we look at this present blessing of sonship, I just want to emphasize one last thing. It's personal, but it's not individual. Because every pronoun that is used in this passage, it's plural, right? You see a lot of we's, ours, and us's, and there's absolutely no I, me's, or my's. In fact, you can read the whole book of Ephesians, and there's not one reference to a specific individual, city, or church. And the point I'm trying to make is this, is that we haven't just been saved from captivity. We haven't just been rescued from slavery. We're not just saved out of something, but actually into something. We're brought into a family. We're, we're brought into a church. We're brought into a community, and this is what the church is. We're just a group of former slaves. And this is why we sing together. This is why we confess our sins together. Isn't that crazy? This is why we eat together. It's why we pray together. We don't say, my father, we say, our father. We work together, and then we share the good news of the gospel together. And this is the good news. It's not our private opinion. It is public news, and it must be shared. And here's what we talk about. We talk about the future. So last point right here. 
the future blessing of cosmic unity. The future blessing of cosmic unity. In verse 10, Paul refers to a plan. This word plan literally means blueprint. And here's what he's saying. History is moving towards a goal. It's not purposeless. It's not meaningless. There's a plan. There's a mystery of his will. Now, Paul is using the word mystery in a little bit of a different way. We think about whodunits and, 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 and crime movies and, and the Hardy Boys. And a mystery is something that's totally unexpected. But when Paul uses the word mystery, he's referring to something that was previously hidden or vaguely known, and now it's clear. Now it's apparent. In other words, in the Old Testament, you had prophets and saints, and they anticipated this mystery, but today we know the truth. It can be fully known. And so Paul uses the word fullness. What this word actually means is to sum it all up, or in totality. So Paul's saying, look, you want me to sum it all up? You want me to give you the bottom line? And this is what we like to do if you write a paper. you got to have that thesis statement, right? It's that one sentence, that one phrase that, that summarizes the whole five-page paper. I tend to be a bottom line guy, okay? And if there's ever a certain book or movie I hear people talking about and I don't want to watch it, I just say, look, j- just summarize it. Give me the bottom line, Leah. I'm not going to read Pride and Prejudice. What's it all about? And this is what Paul is doing. He's saying, here's what the book is all about. Here's the purpose of human history. He's saying all things in heaven and earth will be united. That's it. He's saying all things will come under the headship of Jesus Christ. This is what the whole book's about. Because think about the beginning. In Genesis 1, we read that God created what? The heavens and the earth. And then we read two more chapters and we realize pretty quickly, okay, it doesn't last long. In the Garden of Eden, there's peace, what's called shalom, which is wholeness and harmony in all of creation. There's harmony between man and God, man and each other, man and creation, man and themselves. And in Genesis 3, sin enters the world, interrupts, disrupts everything. And there's a curse. And so now Jesus is saying, I'm coming back, and when I return, I'm going to unite all things. I'm going to reverse the curse. And so all of creation will be united. And the entire church will experience unity. And so therefore, if Jesus is making all things right, if Jesus is bringing an ultimate unity, his people should be people of what? People of unity, people of peace. So this affects the way we, 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 we deal with relationships. We should confess our sin. We should forgive other people. We shouldn't hold grudges. We shouldn't be bitter. We should overlook faults. There shouldn't be any anima- animosity or pride. This also affects the institution of the church. We should be known for racial reconciliation, breaking down barriers when it comes to economics or politics. We should be bridge builders. Do you see this? So here's where we'll wrap it up. Do do you see the typical way we think about the gospel? It's an understatement. We downplay it. Do you see the gospel is so much more than Jesus died for me so my soul can go to heaven? Do you see salvation is not just something that occurs in the past to an individual? What Paul is suggesting is that salvation is past, present, and future. Jesus has saved you. He is saving you, and he will save you. And it's bigger than just you. 
He's making all things new. That's what Revelation 21 says. And follow the logic, right? Genesis 1 says that God made the heavens and the earth. He made everything. And when sin enters the world, it affects what? Everything. And so when Christ returns, he's got to make everything new. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, Ben. I, I, I've seen some movies about heaven, and if I'm following your logic, it, it, it sounds like God, that, that Jesus is going to make this earth new, okay? But I thought we got sucked up to heaven, or I thought heaven was in the clouds. I thought heaven was up there. It seems like Christ is bringing heaven to earth. Well, you're paying attention. That's exactly what I'm saying, okay? So with the last few minutes I got, I want to answer those two questions, right? First off, the question is, well, what about this earth? I I thought this earth was destroyed, it was annihilated, it was reduced to a rubble. We're going to look at two verses real quick. The first is in 2 Peter 3.10. It says this, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up, dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So as you read this verse, you're you're probably saying, Ben, I got you right here. Right? It says right here, the earth is going to be destroyed, burned up, dissolved, and pass away. Well, here's what we got to do. we got to go back to the original language. we got to do a deep dive, because sometimes the deeper significance of these words and phrases is lost in translation. And so what this verb is actually describing is not a fire. It does mention a fire, but it's not a fire of annihilation. It's a fire of purification. And the language that is used here describing the day of the Lord when Christ returns, okay, is that there will be a fire, but it's a refiner's fire. It's the same thing that a goldsmith or metalsmith, uh, it's the same fire that he would use to purify precious metals. So think about it. If a goldsmith wants to make a necklace or a ring, he would get his gold, but there would be impurities that need to be removed. There would be dross. And what would he do? He'd put in a really hot fire. And the impurities would simply melt away. So when Peter in this passage is describing the earth being burned up, he's saying the sin will be burned up. The impurities will be dissolved. And this earth will be refined, purified rather than destroyed. Does that make sense? The earth will be made new. Okay, so if the earth is going to be made new, what about us? Right, I thought it was going to be like an episode of Star Trek. You know, beam me up, Scotty. I go to the clouds, I teleport, I transport. That sounds pretty cool. Won't the church just be sucked up to the heavens? Well, let's look at a passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm going to start in the middle. I'm going to pick up in verse 15. It says this, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, This is actually Paul describing the same event. Peter talks about the day of the Lord. Paul talks about the coming of the Lord. Both of them are referring to the exact same moment in the future when Christ returns. And Paul says this, here's what it's going to be like. He says, when the Lord comes, and when he refers to people being asleep, 
He's not talking to people napping, you know, what you can do this Sunday afternoon. Sleep is a synonym for death, okay? And this is the good news. Even though as believers we grieve death, okay, death is just a really long nap for those who have trusted in Jesus. It gives us hope. But Paul says, you know what the day of the Lord or the coming of the Lord is going to be like? It's going to be like the return of a conquering king, a victorious general, a, a reigning emperor, so let me give you a little historical context. Okay, so, so Ephesus was ruled by Rome. And this is peak Roman Empire. And so here's what would happen. Put yourself in the shoes, the sandals of a Roman soldier. So you, you're going to battle. You're in faraway lands. You're in distant territories. You're swinging that sword each and every day. You're winning battles. You're conquering territories. And all of a sudden, your general would say, we've done it. We've accomplished our mission. We've conquered the land. It's time to go home. Back to Ephesus, okay? So you would start marching, trudging home, the long journey home. And when you got to the, when you got to the outskirts of Ephesus, we were almost back, and you saw the walls of that city in the distance, more than likely, guess what you'd hear? A trumpet. Did you pick up on that? A trumpet. Because there would be a watchman who would sound the alarm and say, the king is back. The general is back. The army is victorious. They've conquered and they're returning. And then all of a sudden, the, 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 the wives, the children, the grandparents, they would gather together and they would leave the city and they would greet the heroes. Does that make sense? They would hug them. They would kiss them. They would say, welcome home, daddy. But here's the million dollar question. Okay? Where do you think they go next? They're currently on the outskirts of the city. They've just been welcomed by their family. Where do you think they're headed next? Y'all help me out. They're going back home. Does that make sense? I'm going back to Ephesus because I want to eat a big meal, drink some good wine, take a nice nap, and enjoy peace and prosperity. Does that make sense? They would return, okay, to their rightful home. This is the exact same language that is used to describe being caught up or meeting with Jesus. Because when Jesus returns the second time, he's coming as a conquering king. Does that make sense? He's won the battle. He's defeated sin, Satan, and death. And yes, we're caught up to meet them in the clouds. But once again, the million-dollar question is, where do we go next? We return to our rightful home. We come right back to earth. And this is where Christ establishes the new heavens, the new earth, the eternal kingdom, the permanent kingdom. And what do we experience for eternity? Unprecedented peace, feasting, drinking, enjoy, celebration, because the war is over, let's experience peace. And this is exactly what the book of Revelations describe. It's a vision of the new heavens and new earth. And in this vision, we, there, there's no picture of, of believers ascending into heaven or being sucked up into heaven. In fact, the image is the exact opposite. The earth is described as a groom, and heavens are described as a bride. And most of you have been married, right? And what's the job of the groom? Just stand there and try not to cry. That's it. But he just waits and tries not to lock his knees. The bride does all the work, slowly but surely. She walks down the aisle, and she's radiant. She's pure. She's beautiful. And that's a picture of heaven descending to earth, coming with King Jesus. Because God promises in Revelation 21 that he's going to make his dwelling place right here on this earth. So some of you are probably thinking, well, well, Ben, that sounds great, but where's the unity today? Where's the peace? 
It seems like our city, our state, our nation is more disordered, more random, more divided than ever. You know, our, our political process is falling apart. Our, our nation's falling apart. My body's falling apart. My car's breaking down. It seems like everything is running down and falling apart. Well, here's the good news. Here's the good news. We've got to be a little like Paul. We've got to be big picture people. And look, I, I, I'm a big picture, picture guy. I like live five years into the future. But Paul is the ultimate big picture guy. Because where does this passage begin? He's looking all the way back. Before the creation of the world. He, he, he is focused, meditating on eternity past. And where does the passage end? The fullness of time in Christ's eventual second return. And so when we situate this election or what's going on in our worlds or our nation in light of eternity past and eternity future, we quickly realize that these protests, these elections, they're petty affairs. They're not that big. And we've got to expand our vision. We've got to have a greater horizon. So we've got to remember the past that God has a plan, a purpose, a will, and a blueprint to unite all things. We've got to focus on the present The fact that Jesus was pulled apart so that we can come together. Jesus was torn on the cross so we can become whole. Jesus suffered so we can be healed. And then we got to focus on the future. And one of my favorite pictures of Jesus is King Jesus in Revelation 19. Because it says, on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. When Jesus returns the second time, he's not coming as a humble carpenter. As a servant, he's going to return as a conquering king. This is thug Jesus. He's got a tat on his thigh. He's inked up. King of kings, Lord of lords, and he's going to make everything right. He's the ultimate king. He's the ultimate ruler. And here's what's really interesting. If you lived in the city of Ephesus, you were under Roman control. And the emperor who reigned was a man named Trajan. And Trajan was pretty full of himself. And he didn't just want your vote because they didn't vote. He wanted you to worship him, bow down to his rule, treat him as a god. In fact, Trajan actually built a statue in the city of Ephesus, and it was a statue of himself with his foot on a globe. And there's an inscription right beneath the globe, and it read this, I am ruler of the world, and the world is under my foot. Well, guess what? Do you know that this statue is still standing today? But we don't have the full figure of Trajan. All that's left is what? Just his foot. Only his foot remains because the reign of Trajan has ended. The reign of Rome has ended. And brothers and sisters, every king, every emperor, every president, the rule comes to an end. Whether you're a Democrat, Republican, third party, it doesn't matter how you voted. There's no president, there's no party that can usher in perfect peace there's only one ruler that can do that and he's not a democrat and he's not a republican it's king jesus and on that day the ruler of rulers the king of kings the lord of lords the day of the lord the coming of the lord he's going to unite all things in heaven and on earth so praise be to jesus the king of kings let me pray for us dear jesus we don't put our hope And any human ruler, any president, any senator, any political party, we don't even put our hope in any nation. Empires come and go. Nations come and go. 
But Jesus, you will return and you will make all things right. You will make all things new. So we praise you. Because this work of salvation started in eternity past. And only you can bring true and lasting unity. So Lord, I pray that we would put our hope not in a human master, human redeemer, or human savior. But God, we would look ahead. We'd look to you. You are King of kings, Lord of lords. May we be people who bring peace and unity to this earth. Bless your name, amen.